Uh, I don't know about you, but it's been a week. Anybody else have that? <laughs> Good, I'm glad I'm not alone. Thank you. Uh, and I was just so encouraged. I walked into the, the room this morning, and Malik was practicing before I was doing my mic check, and I walked into him singing this last song, Lord, I Need You. And I thought, oh, yes, God, I need you this morning. It is nothing that I will say that will change or impact hearts. It has to be the word of God. And my prayer for us this morning as we open up God's word is that you will be encouraged and challenged that the truth of the gospel will penetrate your heart today. And it's not because I'm going to get up here and do this perfectly, or maybe you'll think I'm a little bit funny at some point. It's not about that. It is all about Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be looking at John 18, 1 through 14. And as you just heard read by the Gilmores, our story's going to end with a little bit of a cliffhanger today. And I want to just encourage us as we, um, sorry, my computer is not functioning. There we go. Okay. So our verses are going to set the stage as we move into John's account of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, last Sunday, we studied Jesus' prayer for us, for those who would eventually believe because of the message given from Jesus through the apostles thousands of years ago that has been passed on down to us. And also in the last chapter, we saw Jesus's heart as he prayed. We read about his desire to bring glory to God the Father as he himself was glorified. And we saw Jesus's heart for his disciples as he prayed for them and for us in that last section that we looked at last Sunday. Now today our scripture is going to point to Jesus's power and to his obedience to do the will of God the Father. Now we're going to dive in and we're going to look at the, this incredible power on display by the one who took our rightful place on the cross. The one that defeated death. Now, uh, since I know I'm not alone and having kind of a week, I'm just going to pause and pray. Will you bow your heads with me and pray as we um, open up God's word? Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the honor and privilege of standing up here and opening up your word with my fellow brothers and sisters. God, thank you that you move, that you lead. Thank you for the reminder that we need you. God, I pray that I would just be your vessel this morning, that you would speak powerfully to our hearts, that you would impact us, that we would not just sit here and hear things, but that we would be changed and transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would leave different. Father, I pray that you would help me to hold these notes loosely and that you would speak mightily this morning. In your name I pray, amen. So I, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me. We're going to be looking in John 18, like I said, and we're going to start in verse 1. So our, our sermon this morning is entitled, I am He. And as you, uh, we keep reading it, you're going to see that phrase come up several different times. And um, it's really something that I want us to, to look at, just this, even the power that's in that word, those words. So let's look at verse 1. We're going to start reading John 18, 1. 
When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So this verse gives us some context surrounding the location of Jesus and his disciples. The Kidron Valley separated the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And we can assume, based on the information here about the Kidron Valley, and based on the other accounts of the Gospels that we can read, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, or Luke, Verin, John, uh, based on these other accounts, that the garden referred to in this verse is the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's keep reading. John 18, 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas, one of the twelve, who betrayed Jesus for thirty pieces of silver, uses his intimate knowledge to provide an opportunity for Jesus to be arrested. We can read about the events leading right up to before when Judas shows up in the other Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in these accounts, we read about Jesus agonizing in the garden and praying earnestly to God the Father. So I want us to look at this account in Luke. So if you would like to turn to Luke chapter 22 in your Bibles, join me. And we're going to get some more context for this moment before we continue on in our, our verses for today. But if, I just invite you to join me there in Luke chapter 22, or you can follow along. It's going to be up on the screen. We're going to be in verse 39. 22:39 is where we will start. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. We see Jesus is on his knees before God the Father, asking that the cup, the suffering that he was about to face, the agony of being separated from God the Father as he hung on a cross, taking on the sins of all humanity, be taken if, and only if, God the Father willed it. The cup, this suffering, was not going to be easy, and Jesus knew it. He was asking God the Father for another way, but, but, he was still willing to suffer, to give up his life if that was the will of the Father. And we can read the end of the story, and we will as we continue on in our series in John. We know how the story ends. Jesus willingly gave up his life. He acted in obedience to the plan and the will of the Father. And who benefited from his obedience? Us. His creation his beloved children who were made in his image. 
Jesus' prayer in Luke is another depiction of his heart, of his willing obedience to face being beaten, mocked, and hung on a cross for you and for me, if that is what God the Father willed. And it was. Jesus came before his Father openly and honestly, but with a willingness to obey with the willingness to trust the plans of the Father and as a willing sacrifice for us and for our sins. As I read through these verses in Luke, I started to think, do I do this? Do we do this? Do we come before God the Father honestly and openly, but with a willingness to obey and to trust? I know this is not always my first reaction, or even my second. Too often we can try to hide our true feelings from an all-knowing, all-powerful God. We forget that he knows our thoughts, that he knows our hearts. But here's the good news. He still loves us. Or perhaps we think we can hide our sin from God. That we can justify it away as not being that bad or pretend like we never did it in the first place. It's a little bit like the third invisible child that lives at my house. Does anybody else have one of these? Yeah, or had one maybe when you had kids living at home? Nobody ever does anything. So obviously, it's the invisible child who, you know, breaks things or leaves things out, forgets to put their shoes away, leaves an empty toilet paper roll in the bathroom, or even eats the ice cream sandwiches that you bought for a specific dinner that the children were not invited to. So, you know, it's always the invisible child's fault. And man, that kid is trouble, right? But how often do we blame the invisible child in our relationship with Christ? We don't want to admit our faults, our sin, our judgment, or our anger. And we blame the invisible child instead. It's easier to deny, to not take ownership, and to not be honest. It's hard to admit that we're wrong. That we're holding on to sin or we're holding on to anger or judgment more than we are holding on to Jesus. But in the end, this causes more pain. This causes more suffering, more fear, more anxiety. Because when we are willing to come before the almighty, most holy, all-powerful, loving God, with an open and honest heart, that is where true healing begins. He already knows our hearts, our thoughts. He knows that invisible child. And he wants us to come before him, humbly admitting that we are not perfect and that we need him. We have an invitation to a personal relationship with the creator of the universe because he sent his son to die for us. 
He loves us and he wants us to come with open and honest and obedient hearts that are willing to trust his perfect plan. Let's continue to read in Luke. We're going to pick back up in verse 45. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who called, was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. So this is where our story picks up in verse 3 of John chapter 18. So we're going to go back to John now, if you'll join me back there in your Bibles, and we're going to start back in verse 3 of John. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So there's some really important information in this verse. Judas did not come alone. And he didn't come with just a few other people to arrest Jesus. We read in Luke that he came with a crowd. And in our verse here in John, it's telling us that he came with a detachment. And from what I have read as I was studying, it could mean that Judas came with anywhere from possibly 200 to 600 men. They, and they did not come with like treats and hugs or sunshine and roses. They came with torches and lanterns and weapons. They came with a stance of power and authority. And we can hypothesize from this information that the crowd or the detachment was coming prepared for a fight. They were coming prepared to search a garden for a man, Jesus, whom they were there to arrest. You don't come with torches and weapons unless you're expecting a search and some possible resistance. But when this crowd of men armed for a fight came into the garden, Jesus calmly initiates. Let's read in John 18:4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus initiates here. He was not a victim, and nothing took him by surprise. He willingly stepped up, went up to the crowd, and asked them what he already knew, who they were there for. In John 10, we read about Jesus being the good shepherd and laying down his life. John 10, 14 through 18 says, it'll be up on the screen. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. His life was not taken from him. It was laid down in obedience to God the Father for all of humanity. So let's get back to our passage. We're going to start back in John 18, 4 again. We'll reread that verse. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, 
went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Jesus, knowing all that he would endure, knowing the pain and the suffering and the death that he was about to face, told the crowd that they had found the man that they were looking for. Let's go back to verse 6. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is incredible. At the name of Jesus, this crowd draws back and they fall to the ground. Jesus simply proclaims who he is and they fall to the ground. Now, can you imagine this scene? I mean, did they fall like dominoes as they step back? I mean, I don't know, right? But this is an incredible moment and the details of, of it don't matter. But what does matter is the fact that some revelation of Jesus' power and authority must have occurred to make them draw back and fall to the ground. Jesus, an unarmed man, standing before a crowd of soldiers prepared for a fight with all of their torches and their weapons, was in complete control as he proclaimed who he was, and prepared for the incredible sacrifice he was about to make on our behalf. So let's pick back up in verse 7. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Here we see Jesus as protector over his disciples. He asked for these men, the disciples, to be allowed to go. And he is fulfilling what we read two Sundays ago in John 17, verse 12. And we'll have it on the screen for you. It says this. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus protects his disciples before they scatter and he is arrested. His deep love and care for them is on display as he faces an armed crowd there to arrest him. We can read more about this love in John chapter 13 verse 1. Just before Jesus washes his disciples' feet as they prepare to share the Last Supper together, this is what John 13.1 says. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he would love them to the end. Here we see him loving and protecting his own to the end. 
And then in comes Peter. Oh, Peter. Let's, let's read about Peter in verses 10 through 11. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it back and struck the high priest's servants, cut, high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In what feels like a foot-to-mouth or better yet sword-to-ear moment, Peter cuts off a guy's ear in an effort to defend Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him. He tells him to put his sword away and reminds Peter once again of the cup the Father has given him that he must drink from. In other gospel accounts, we read that Jesus miraculously heals this guy's ear, which is pretty incredible. That even moments before his arrest, Jesus was still loving. He was still caring. He was still healing and still willing to do the will of the Father. So let's continue on in verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good for one man to die for the people. So we can read about Caiaphas's advice in John chapter 11. So we're going to move there. And I just want to give us a little bit of context before we jump into this verse. So this is just, uh, these verses we're going to read, just before them, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of context as we jump into towards the end of this chapter. We're going to look at John eleven forty five through 54. So if you want to turn over a couple chapters in your Bible, you can join me. It's going to be on the screen as well. But let's read about this. It says, John eleven forty five. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Verse 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together 
and make them one. Verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So even though Caiaphas didn't realize it, his statement was a prophecy. And he was being used by God to explain Jesus' death. And in John chapter 18, we see this begin to play out as Jesus is arrested and his trial begins. Now, I told you at the beginning that our, our verses were going to leave us with a little bit of a cliffhanger. And they're setting the stage for the most miraculous part of the story yet to come. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in these short 12 verses, John has shown Jesus as the all-powerful, all-knowing Son of God, willing to drink the cup of suffering and death from the Father. John shows Jesus as a powerful yet willing participant in his arrest. And this arrest that would ultimately lead to his death. And he did all of this because he loves us. He loves all of us. Even those people who are really hard to love or perhaps we don't think deserve his love. Now, I don't know about you, but I am really great at convincing myself of things. I can convince myself that I need a treat. I did it this morning. I stopped and got breakfast on my way to church. <laughs> or I can easily convince myself that binge watching that TV show really isn't that big of a waste of my time. Or I can convince myself that I deserve to do something far more fun than folding my laundry or doing the dishes or whatever else I don't want to do around my house that doesn't sound fun in the moment or that I don't feel like taking care of. But I'm also really good at convincing myself that my sin isn't all that bad. That I'm justified in my anger or my frustration. I can convince myself that my judgments are accurate and therefore they're not sinful. I can tell myself that I am right and others are wrong, so I shouldn't feel too bad about those not-so-nice thoughts rolling around in my head and in my heart. I can easily convince myself that my anger is justified because that person just doesn't get it. Or that they are wrong, and I can lose sight of the fact that the other person is also a child of God. And regardless of which one of us is right, they deserve to be loved, and I need to repent. So here's where the problems lie. My sin is a big deal. Jesus died for my sin. And when I justify my sin away, I diminish what Jesus died for. I make less of his sacrifice 
and his obedience. And what is really needed is a heart change. A repentant heart change to realize the vastness of my sin and exactly what Jesus died for. Too often we replace temporary relief in this life for true freedom that is found in Jesus. We try to take a shortcut to get to the finish line of dealing with our sin without doing the heart work, without begging God to break our hearts with what breaks his. We do it without being truly broken over our sin. We can justify our sin away or replace the need for true repentance with temporary relief or distraction. But ultimately, this can lead to repeated sin or justification for sin. And this temporary relief might feel good in the moment because we can achieve it ourselves. But nothing, nothing will compare to the freedom found in Jesus because of his finished work on the cross. Nothing compares. None of those distractions or justifications. Those are only temporary. And to quote my friend Laura Stengel, I choose wrong 100% of the time without Jesus. But God has offered me a way to choose right. Now this doesn't mean that we will do everything perfectly. All right, but God provided a way in Jesus for us to have a personal relationship and an intimate relationship with our creator, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one and only true and holy God. And too often we try to find our own way. We depend on ourselves and we lose sight of what Jesus died for. And we forget that he took our rightful place on the cross. We lose sight of the importance of obedience, of willing obedience to submit to the will of God the Father and our Lord Jesus. So how do we do this on a daily basis? How do we live in a way that keeps Jesus' work on the cross at the forefront of our minds? First, we have to recognize our need for a Savior each and every day. And not just once a day, every moment of every day. We need to spend time in the Word. This book needs to be precious to us. And we need to spend time in the word so we are reminded of how great he is and how messed up and sinful we are. But we can't just be in the word or just be hearers of the word. We need to be doers of the word. 
as we read in, in James 1, 22, we must not merely just listen to the word and so deceive ourselves. We are to do what it says. That's James 1, 22. If you want to read the full verse later. The Lord has really been convicting me recently with a realization that too often my words don't match my heart. That sometimes I say things because I know they're right, but my heart doesn't match. And too often I can allow my own perceptions to influence the condition of my heart more than the truth of God's word. My emotions, my perspective, my perception are fleeting because I am a sinful human. I must allow truth, the truth I read about in scripture, to influence the condition of my heart, not my own perceptions. We must not just be hearing the word. We can't just be hearing the word. We have to put it into practice and allow it to impact our hearts. And we need to look for moments to be a light, to live with an eternal mindset, and to care about the eternity of other people. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be like walking around yelling bluntly at people that they're going to hell without Jesus. It means that our, our actions, our character need to reflect the character of Christ. Our words should reflect what we're reading in scripture. The way we live, the decisions we make. Now there will be time to boldly proclaim the truth in the gospel. But what I want you to think about is what is your sphere of influence right now? Who are the people that you come in contact with on a, a daily, weekly, monthly basis? Who are those people and how can you be a light? So for me, as I kind of thought through this idea and this thought of what's my sphere of influence? Who, who can I be a light to? I started to think about uh, my job. I started a new job this fall, a job that I went back to grad school for, a job that I really have dreamed about for doing many years, and uh, I got to start teaching college. And I could spend an entire other sermon amount of time telling you the ways that God opened up doors for me to get the job that I have right now. Um, and how he led and provided and just did incredible things that blew me away. The details are incredible, but that's a whole other sermon and in light of time. I'm going to summarize it with this. God is good, and he blessed me with the sweetest gig. I get to teach interpersonal communication to college students, and then I also have a, a class of high school students. And I find myself in every single lecture, being to weave in truth to my students. Now, by God's grace, the book that my school uses was written by a believer. 
And I've read this book before, and I can tell you, I can pinpoint where he pulled truth from Scripture. He does not claim that it's from the Bible, but I know. And I get to weave this truth into my lectures twice a week. And we have discussions about things like humility and putting other people before ourselves. And we talk about how we need to be careful with our words and realizing how much our words impact other people. It's all interpersonal communication. And we talk about being empathetic and caring about the stories of other people because other people matter. So I have found my own little opportunity of ministry as my students have really shared some really hard things that they've been dealing with in their lives. They've been open and honest with me in ways that I never expected. And while I have to be careful, um, just from where I work, and be careful with my responses, I can still love them with the love of Christ. I can still point them to truth and be kind and gracious and compassionate with them. And this is only because I realized that I was first loved by Jesus. Now, I might not be able to openly share the gospel from week to week in my class, but I am sharing the love of Jesus, and I am encouraging them to love other people and to care deeply about how they interact with others around them. And my actions need to reflect the words that I am saying to my students. And most importantly, my actions need to reflect the character of Christ because he is my source of strength. He is the one who will grant me wisdom. And he's going to give me the words to say as I interact with my students. Because Jesus saved me, I am made new. I am redeemed, and I can be a light in a broken and dark world. Where can you be a light? But I need him. I need my Savior because on my own, in my own humanness, I will choose wrong. And in moments when I want to act out, out of my humanness and justify my sin away, I would encourage us when we do this, when we want to act out of our humanness and when we want to justify our sin away, that instead we would choose to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. In Micah 6, uh, Micah, the author, is bringing the Lord's case against Israel. And after the people have tried to appease God with empty sacrifices, Micah makes the Lord's request clear in chapter 6, verse 8. And it'll be up on the screen. It says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. As I was studying for this, one of my, well, it's my Bible that's right here. My favorite study Bibles is the Life Application Study Bible. 
And um, below this verse in Micah 6, it had this commentary, and it's going to be up on the screen so you can follow with me. It's, it's a longer quote, so I want to read it to us. But it has some really thought-provoking questions in it. And that's something I, I love about this. It's, it's called the Life Application Study Bible. It helps us apply what we learn. And this is what it says. People have tried all kinds of ways to please God, but God has made his requirements clear. Do what is right, just and right. Love mercy and walk humbly with him. In our efforts to please God, examine these areas on a regular basis. And you're, are you fair in your dealings with people and money? Do you show mercy to those who wrong you? Do you keep your ego from taking over your thoughts and your actions? That's a convicting question. And are you living in a way that reflects a deep and growing relationship with God? Are we living in a way that reflects a deep and growing relationship with God? May our lives be a reflection of Jesus. May we choose to live in the freedom that Christ offers us because he broke the chains of sin and shame. And may we be light in a dark and broken and hopeless world. May we be willing to obediently submit to the will of the Father. So what I want to help us think through this morning is this. What's the Lord asking us to do? Where have we been resisting obedience? Where have we been avoiding the heart work of true repentance so we can live in freedom? Are you having a hard time loving someone? I would encourage you to serve them. Are you feeling disconnected? Have you been justifying your lack of even maybe wanting to be at church? I would challenge you, reach out, get connected. If you call COV your church, serve. Put yourself out there. Get to know other people. I mean, do the trunk or treat, right? Chris, you need people. We need people to serve in youth ministry, children's ministry. Because, oh, when we serve, it's such a blessing. And God grows us. We are coming out of a season of isolation. Where we were able to hide where we were able to stay to ourselves, where we felt free to judge the actions of others without repercussions because we were doing it from afar. But can I challenge us? It is time to get back in the trenches. It is time to do life on life again. And there are safe ways to do this because let me tell you, we need each other. We need community. We need connection. We need to be vulnerable with other people and to be honest. And we need to be real enough with each other so that we can call each other out on stuff. 
But we need people in our lives that will speak the truth in love. Not giving us too much truth and not giving us too much grace, but right down the middle. There are lots of simple ways to serve. And when we serve, it puts somebody else before ourselves. It reminds us of the need to submit before an almighty, most holy God. Now as we move into a time of communion in a few minutes, I really want to encourage you to sit in silence for a little bit. To sit and reflect. Ask the Lord to convict your heart, to reveal where you are not being obedient. To reveal the hard heart work. Heart work is hard. Say that ten times fast. But we need to do it. Ask God to show you where you need connection with community that he has provided you. Remember just as Tim said last week, when God the Father looks at us, he sees his son. And when we look at others, may we see someone who Jesus died for. Someone who is deeply loved by their creator. And may we love others well, regardless of their lovable status. May we be willing to submit to the will of the Father just like Jesus did, regardless of how uncomfortable it might make us feel or how hard it might feel. May we reflect the character of Christ because we remember the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. Let's not forget what we just read about today in John. How we saw Jesus' power and his willingness to obediently submit to the will of the Father regardless of the suffering that he was going to face. May we be willing to obey. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these verses. Thank you for um, sending Jesus to this earth to live a perfect and sinless life, to die the death that we deserve, and to defeat death by rising again. God, thank you for the incredible reminder and example that we read about this morning of Jesus' willingness to obey and to submit. God, I pray as we move into a time of reflection through worship and communion that you would convict our hearts. That we wouldn't have just heard the word today, but that you would change us and that we would go out and we would do something differently. We pray this in your name. May you get all the glory and all the honor. Amen.